<clears throat> if you're uh, just joining us, we are in a study of the life of Moses, and you will find an outline on the back of your bulletin, and there are printed manuscripts of the message at all the exits. You can get one now or on your way out as you like. And all of those are on the church website, both in printed and audio form going back 26 years, and that covers the life of Moses, which this is the 23rd message in that subject. And uh, I anticipate maybe about seven more Uh, Marla and I are going to be on vacation next week, and our missionary, uh, Eric Powell, who came out of this church, uh, will be filling the pulpit for me. Uh, We're going to head up to Colorado this afternoon, so be back in two weeks to continue our study of Moses. In Numbers chapter 13, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourselves men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were the heads of the sons of Israel. And then their names follow, down in verse 6, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephthunah. And then in verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. Jumping down to verse 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, but Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev, that's the southern part of Canaan, the desert, And then go up into the hill country and see what the land is like, whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob at Labohamath. And when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, Eshkol means cluster. And from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster from which the sons of Israel cut down from there. When they had returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, for this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, Amalek's living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But... The men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we've gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also 
we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. And then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept all night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land through which we passed to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then He'll bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord. And don't fear the people of the land, for they'll be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? We will pick up the story there next time as it continues. Back in the early years of the 20th century, there was a godly, scholarly Hebrew professor at Princeton University, uh, Princeton Seminary, Back then, Princeton was still a conservative evangelical school. His name was Robert Dick Wilson, and it's uh, reputed that he could read at least 26 Semitic languages. Well, one time, after Donald Gray Barnhouse, who later became the uh, pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, after he had graduated, he went back to Princeton to speak to the students Uh, Dr. Wilson sat near the front, and after the message, he went forward, and he shook Barnhouse's hand. And he said, when my boys come back, I like to see if they're big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. Well, Barnhouse asked him to explain, and Dr. Wilson replied, well, he said, some men have a little god, And they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scriptures to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God. And I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. And he went on to tell Barnhouse he could see that he had a great God and that God would bless his ministry as, in fact, God did. Now, in our text that we read in Numbers 13 and 14, we meet two men who are big godders. They trusted in God. And then we meet ten men who were little godders. The situation is Israel was on the southern border of the land of Canaan. Canaan, poised to go north, right into Canaan, and take the land. Moses sends out these 12 men to spy out the land. Ten come back with a bad report, focusing on the giants in the land. Uh, Two come back with a good report, saying, in effect, this is a paraphrase of chapter 14, verse 9, we're going to eat these guys for lunch. They're going to be our food. Uh, The ten influence the congregation to side with them. They vote to uh, appoint a leader 
and go back to Egypt. And as a result, in the part we'll look at next time, God decreed because they all said, oh, would that we had died in this wilderness. And God says, all right, have it your way. And they all will die in the wilderness from that generation. And only their children and these two believing spies would cross the Jordan later, 38 years later, and go into the promised land. And the message applied to us is that by faith, God wants you to persevere in His promise of salvation and not yield to strong temptations to unbelief that undoubtedly will come to all of us. Now, as we begin, let me mention an apparent contradiction. If you know your Bible, you know that Moses reports on the same situation in Deuteronomy chapter 1, and seemingly he contradicts himself. I'm going to believe that Moses knew enough not to contradict himself. But in Deuteronomy chapter 1, he indicates that the people came up with the idea of spying out the land. Moses agreed to it and sent the spies. Here in our text, the Lord tells Moses to send out the spies. I believe those two reports can be easily harmonized. The people, out of fear, said, we need to check this out before we go into the land. Appoint some spies. I think Moses thought, well, this will be an opportunity to strengthen their faith. They'll go up. They will see the good land that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. That phrase occurs several times here. And they'll come back and go, let's do it. Um, God, uh, whether out of graciously to strengthen their weak faith, or perhaps to reveal the unbelief that would later disqualify them from going into the land, agrees to the plan and tells Moses, send them up. And so, in our chapter here, we have... Two examples. One is of persevering faith, the two spies. The other is of temporary faith, faith that yields to unbelief when faced with problems. I believe the first and main lesson we gain from our text is that by faith, God wants you to persevere in His promise of salvation. And as we've seen in our study the Exodus is kind of the premier example in the Old Testament of what we would call salvation in the New Testament. In the Exodus, God redeemed His chosen people, Israel, from bondage in Egypt. In the New Testament, God redeems His chosen people from bondage in uh, sin, bondage to sin. And the New Testament reveals that God promises salvation to all who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you have to understand, in the Old Testament, salvation was pretty much restricted to Israel and to the people who joined themselves with Israel. It it was God's plan. Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to reveal His salvation. And so when you get into the book of Joshua, you have this harlot named Rahab, and she's living in Jericho, and she hears about how God did the exodus, and she believes in the God of Israel. And so when the two spies come, she harbors them safely, and before she sends them back, says, would you please remember me when you guys come, because I know God's going to give you this city. And she believes. And Rahab, in Scripture, shows up in Matthew chapter 1 as an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she shows up in Hebrews chapter 11 as an example of those who believe God. And so, Gentiles could join to Israel and believe, but if you were apart from Israel, there was really, as far as we know, uh, no way of faith. But here's the good news for most of us, because most of us are Gentile. And that is in the New Testament, Jesus gives the Great Commission and says, go into all the world, go to all the nations and proclaim the good news of salvation. 
And in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, we have this wonderful promise, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's as broad as you can get, isn't it? Whoever. And at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, the Bible ends almost on this this invitation. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And that invitation is open to every person. It is the best news in the world. That you don't have to deal with your sin in terms of cleaning up your life. You don't have to earn salvation through a life of good works. That all follows. You come as you are to Jesus. And He welcomes you through the shed blood that He gave for your sin on the cross. And that is incredible good news. Open to all. But, there were many in Israel, and they were genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they were of the seed of Abraham, genetically. But they only had temporary faith, and not persevering faith. I conclude that because at the Exodus, they had to have enough faith to take the blood of the Lamb and put it on the doorpost in order that the destroying angel would not wipe out their firstborn. And so they did that. And they went out with Moses through the sea and into the wilderness, but then they began griping. And as we've seen, it was a history of griping. And I believe subsequent history reveals they did not truly believe in God or in His promise when He says, right in verse 2 of our text, I'm going to give the sons of Israel the land of Canaan. That's my promise. And you know, in the same way, there have always been in the church, and there are in the church today, I'm talking the church at large, people who profess faith in Christ, they associate with the people of God in the church, but they don't truly believe with persevering faith. They're like the seed that Jesus talked about, sown on the rocky soil. Uh, The rocky soil in that parable was not soil with rocks in it. It was a thin layer of soil over a hard, um, rocky under, under layer, and it couldn't send down roots. And Jesus said that when the sun comes up and beats on those plants with shallow roots, they wither and die. And so it is with some. In the book of Hebrews, in the same way, it was written to a second generation group of Jewish Christians. They had left Judaism, trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, but now they're under persecution and they're tempted to go back to Judaism because they didn't catch persecution there. And the author of Hebrews is writing saying, no, no, you cannot go back. And he says in Hebrews 10.36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You see the parallel there with the promised land? You have need of endurance, so that when you do the will of God, you obey Him by faith, you receive the promise. In our case, eternal life. Back in Hebrews 3, the author directly refers to our chapters here, when Israel refused to go into the land and the generation that perished in the wilderness because they did not uh, persevere in faith. And he says this in Hebrews 3, 14 through 19. He says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. There's perseverance. While it is said, and here he quotes from Psalm 95, which is referring back to this incident in um, the book of Numbers. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. The author of Hebrews continues, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? 
but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Their faith did not persevere. They, they disbelieved God. And so we learn that those then with genuine saving faith persevere. Those with temporary faith turn back into the world. Now, I find that many evangelicals do not understand this important point. For example, I've often had parents, and when I ask about their children, adult, an adult child, they will say, well, you know, yeah, sadly, he's living in immorality right now. He's living with his girlfriend, and uh, he's doing drugs, and uh, yeah, he makes no profession of faith, but... But when he was a child, he prayed to invite Jesus to come into his heart at vacation Bible school or summer camp or something. And, you know, once saved, always saved, right? And my answer to that is, once truly saved, always saved. But there's a difference between true faith that perseveres and temporary faith. Now, of course, those with true faith can sin and fall away from the Lord for a time. David did with Bathsheba. Peter did with his denials of Christ. But here's the deal. If the Holy Spirit is living in you, you cannot be happy in sin. Read Psalm 38, Psalm 51. See how David felt when he had fallen away from the Lord. And I've had men come to me at times and confess they were unfaithful to their wife. And they'll say, I just feel miserable. And I said, boy, I'm glad to hear that. Because if you were feeling good, that's a bad sign. We've got to go back and talk about the gospel. If you're feeling miserable, then yeah, all right, good. Let's talk about how to get out of this mess and be restored to the Lord. But to be content in sin is not a good thing. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 7, and these are some of the scariest verses for me in the whole Bible, because this is talking about people in ministry. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. So they're professing him as Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons And in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What horrible words to hear when you face the Lord Jesus. In another context, warning about coming persecution and lawlessness, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And I believe that's the point of the several warning passages in the book of Hebrews. I acknowledge those are difficult passages. I had a young man yesterday email me about what do you do with these. And um, if you're interested, my messages on Hebrews are on the website. But I believe that the warning passages are making this point that It's possible for people to profess faith in Christ and to look for a while like they believe, maybe to go out and do ministry, as Jesus said in his name. But the test of genuine faith is, does it persevere under trials? Does it persevere? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, the Lord is speaking and says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, My soul has no pleasure in him. And then the author of Hebrews says, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now the good news is this, that God's promises and his power for perseverance are available to all who have trusted in Christ. In verse 2, God reiterates his promise, I'm going to give the land of Canaan, to the sons of Israel. 
Now, obviously, when God made that promise before the spies went out, God knew there were giants in the land that Israel would have to face and defeat. He knew that there would be uh, temptation to compromise and not kill the Canaanites as God decreed. He knew that there would be temptation to adopt the Canaanite gods, to intermarry with the Canaanite people and adopt their, their godless ways. But the people who were sent out were leaders of the tribes. It says in verse 1, it repeats that again, in, or it says that in verse 2, I mean, and repeats that again in verse 3. Only two of the spies, and I would challenge, is there anybody who can name the other ten by memory? We forgot them, didn't we? We know the two. The two. Caleb and Hoshea. Now, we know Hoshea more by the name Moses calls him Joshua. Hoshea means salvation. Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is the covenant name of God that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Joshua is the same as Jesus. It means Yahweh saves. And so when the angel announces to Joseph that Mary is to give birth by the Holy Spirit, he says there in Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, and then adds the explanation, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, we've already encountered Joshua in the narrative of the life of Moses, Um, I believe maybe his name change is mentioned here for the first time because as the one believe or one of the two believing spies in coming back, um, his report shows the Lord will save his people if they trust him. And as we'll see in the next time, the other 10 spies all die in a plague uh, at the end of chapter 14. Joshua and Caleb, they report that the promised land, this is in chapter 14, verse 7 and 8, was an exceedingly good land, flowing with milk and honey, which is a a sign of God's abundance. And um, they bring back this huge cluster of grapes as evidence of that. And even the ten unbelieving spies report in chapter 13, verse 27, it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And my point is this, if God has saved you, he has given you abundant evidence, many evidences of his goodness that he will help you persevere. Paul says that we have gotten every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 1.3. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that God has given you everything pertaining to life, and godliness, that's pretty comprehensive, through the knowledge of Jesus our Lord, through his precious and magnificent promises. God has promised to give you victory over sin as you walk by means of the Holy Spirit. God has promised to supply your every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I could go on and on and on. The Bible is loaded from cover to cover with the many promises of God that show that he will never leave us or forsake us. But there's one thing he never promises. He never promises that the Christian life will be easy. And so, if God has saved you, perseverance, that means, is not automatic, but it requires a fight of faith against difficult adversaries. And the Bible often pictures the Christian life as a fight a battle, put on the full armor, all of that kind of thing. Now you think about this story. God had the capability of sending a plague and killing all the Canaanites. Israel then could have just said, hey guys, might have to do a few burials, but let's go in and take the land. Sitting there, empty. God did that, in fact. Remember when Hezekiah was being attacked by King Sennacherib? And it says, the angel of the Lord went out in the camp of Sennacherib's army, and when they woke up in the morning, 185,000 of Sennacherib's warriors were dead. God could do that. But he allowed the Canaanites to remain in Israel, 
so that Israel would learn something very valuable. They had to trust Him. And they had to obey Him. And when they did that, they came to know His faithfulness and His power in a way they wouldn't have if they hadn't had to go in and clean house in the land of Canaan. And you know that. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that the times looking back that you have grown the most were when you had to trust God the most because you were going through it. Isn't that right? You know, when things are going smoothly, hey, man, Christian life's a breeze. This is great. Wham! Some trial hits. Oh, Lord. And we're on our knees more than we normally are on our knees saying, God, help, help, help. And you come through that saying, wow, I know the Lord better now than I did before. Thank you, Lord. But let me make clear. The options are not a difficult life as a believer or a better life if you go back to the world. You know? The people plan here, let's dump Moses, let's pick a new leader, and let's go back to Egypt. And the implication is, everything will be great. Huh? Hello. You know, where are they at? Remember Egypt? They were slaves under that cruel taskmaster, whipping them if they didn't meet their quota. I mean, going back to Egypt would have meant they're going back through that hot, blistering desert, and they don't now have the cloud, because God's not going to lead them back with the cloud. So they're under the blistering sun. They don't have the, the pillar of fire at night to light their camp. They don't have any manna, and there's no food out there in that desert. They don't have the water from the rock. And so they are going back, and even if they made it back alive, who are they going to face when they get back? An angry Pharaoh? Angry Egyptians who say, these are the rascals that gave us those ten plagues. These are the guys responsible for the death of our firstborn. Enslave them. Make them pay. It would have been a miserable existence. And so, returning to Egypt wasn't going to solve anything. The only way for believers is to go forward trusting God. Yes, there are giants. But yes, by God's grace and His supply, we can take care of them. So, as Jesus warned about the seed on the rocky soil, and as the book of Hebrews warns us, uh, there are many who profess to believe in Christ, but then when the trials hit, They bail out, they go back to Egypt, back to the world, thinking foolishly, oh, life will be better back there. It's not. And so to persevere in faith then, you have to overcome strong temptations to unbelief. And they come. Remember when God met Moses at the burning bush? Here's what he promised. As he said, I'm going to use you to bring Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Exodus 3.8. So I have come down, God says, to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, there's that imagery again, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now, you need to note both sides of that promise. On the one hand, I'm going to bring them into this spacious, wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. And by the way, the land has all these scary people with the funny names who are giants, many of them, that you're going to have to displace. And interestingly, when the the spies come back in verses 27, 28, and 29, they basically repeat God's promise. They say, yep, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and yep. It's a land where the descendants of Anak are there and Amalek's living in the land and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and all the otherites and they're going, oh, well, that's what God had promised. You know, it's a land flowing with milk and honey and it's the land of all these characters, these guys that you're going to have to displace. And so rather than believing God's promise that by going into the land to fight, they're focusing on the giants And they're rejecting God's promise. And I think their story teaches us four things. And I want to just close with these four about persevering in faith. First of all, to persevere in faith, you have to realize that unbelief is a terrible 
sin. Now, if I asked all of you before I just said that to get out a piece of paper and write down what you think are the ten worst sins, I have a hunch unbelief wouldn't be on there. Oh, we might mention murder, immorality, you know, rape, theft, child abuse. We'd, we'd go on down the line. Unbelief? Well, yeah, maybe, but no. But unbelief is a terrible sin. It's a terrible sin in the first place because unbelief is the root of all sins. Now, you say, wait a minute, Steve. I remember you said pride is the root of all sins. True, but pride and unbelief are inseparable. And here's why. Proud people don't believe God. God has said, I will save no one by your good works. Proud people say, no, I can do it myself. You know, I can reform my life. I can do good works. I can pile up enough good works to outweigh the bad works. And they are disbelieving what God says very plainly. No, by the works of the law, no flesh will be saved. It's only through trusting in Jesus and his shed blood on the cross that God justifies the ungodly. So unbelief and... and uh, Pride are just flip sides of the same coin and that unbelief in the promise of God that refuses to humble yourself and say, God, I am a sinner, damns millions of people to to eternity in hell. And unbelief is behind all sins because it's really the bait Satan used with Eve. Remember in the garden when he said, Indeed, has God said... He's trying to get her to doubt the very plain word of God. And unbelief still whispers in our ear today, Has God said that whatever you sow, you'll reap? Come on! God is a gracious God. God is a forgiving God. Go sow all that you want of sin. And, you know, when you've sown your wild oats, then you can come and believe. And the Bible's pretty clear. You sow, you reap. Another reason unbelief is a dangerous sin is because it's deceptive and it spreads easily and quickly. Uh, It it has a way of just spreading among people as it plays on their fears. You notice in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14, it says, All the congregation, all the sons of Israel, the whole congregation. Alexander McLaren, an old... uh, preacher from the the 19th century, British guy. He describes the unbelief of the ten spies as cowardice disguised as prudence. They seemed like the voice of sanity. You know, they said, hey, listen, Israel, these guys are really, really big. And you know, if you go in there, these guys are just going to take you out. Uh, There's no way. And so... Let me give you just a word of wisdom. The prudent thing to do, let's go back to Egypt. We'll we'll be safe there. And so their unbelief just spreads through the camp like those wildfires in California. Now in our day, unbelief spreads through the Christian camp by saying things like, you know, the Genesis account of creation is just a myth. It's in contradiction to science. Anyone who knows science knows that evolution is true. And frankly, there are many myths in the Bible. You can't believe all these miracles. Have you ever seen a man walk on water? You know, have you ever seen someone raised from the dead? Come on. Be wise. Be prudent. You know, don't believe all that stuff. And pretty soon, faith in God's inerrant word is undermined. Another reason unbelief is a terrible sin is because it's a blasphemous sin. It rejects God's salvation and accuses him of cruelty and deception and weakness. In verse 3, the people do that. They accuse God of bringing them into the land just to die by the sword, to have their wives and children become plunder. And John Calvin is where I got this point. He points out that they are accusing God there of deception And cruelty, as if, ha, 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 I'm going to bring them into the land, and they'll think they're going to get the land, and they're all going to get killed. And then their wives and children, who thought they were going to get a great home in the land, they're all going to get sold as slaves or as plunder. 
And so God is deceptive and God is cruel and God is weak because he's not as strong as all these godless idolater giants who are in the land. And you know, professing Christians do the same thing. I remember one time years ago reading a Christian counselor in a well-known Christian publication and he was telling a young mother who had lost her toddler that she had a right to be angry at God for what God had done. Right to be angry at God. Let me, let me just say, that's encouraging blasphemous unbelief. You and I don't have a right to take our next breath. You and I don't have a right to walk out of this building alive this morning. If God's going to give us our rights... We're just taken out right now. And yes, losing a child has got to be the hardest trial that God gives some folks. I'm not diminishing that. But what I'm saying is to accuse God of of cruelty because of a difficult trial or to accuse God of deception because His promises aren't just working out the way I thought they would. Or to accuse God of weakness because you didn't answer my prayer the way I thought you ought to answer my prayer. That's just blasphemy. And so unbelief is a terrible sin that we have to guard against. And that means that to persevere in faith, you have to resist the temptation to go along with the majority opinion in the world. And I might add, sometimes the majority opinion in the church. Faith in God and His promises is not the popular thing. It's two against ten here. And pretty soon it's two against the whole congregation. Alexander McLaren again says, Not to believe Him, God, unless a jury of twelve of ourselves says the same thing is much the same thing as not believing Him at all. For it's not He, but they whom we believe after all. Now, I want to be sensitive here because I know there are some who struggle with this sin. But I want to say it very plainly because it's flooding into the church. And that is, the world is now saying what they didn't say 40 years ago. And that is that homosexuality is okay. It's just the way you're made. You're born that way. And many Christians are buying into this. It's flooding into the church, especially among younger Christians, where they go, hey, what's the big deal? You know, you can be gay and be a Christian. And you can believe in Jesus and practice homosexuality. That's the majority opinion. The only basis we have for knowing is that right or wrong is the Word of God. And the Word of God is pretty plain. Now, the good news is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our God. So, there's good news for all. But we have to stay sensitively, but strongly say, you know what? That's wrong. And here's God's way. Another thing that's just flooded the church, or the the world, I mean, and it will come into the church soon, is gender fluidity. You know, you can figure out what gender you want to be. I read an article yesterday. There are parents in America now raising their kids gender neutral, trying to. They don't tell them they're a boy or girl when they're toddlers. They they don't say he or she. They use they. And they don't give them toys appropriate to a gender or anything. They want them to decide, to be free to decide. And even secular pediatricians are saying this is sheer nonsense this is going to destroy these kids they won't even know what they are by genetics you know but this is going in our society now and again we have to say you know God made them male and female in his image for a reason and both are valued in his sight and boys should be boys and girls should be girls so You've got to stand against the world. The third thing to notice, to persevere in faith, you have to resist the temptation to exaggerate your problems. 
and to minimize God's power to keep his promises. Uh, McLaren says, the, the spies went looking for dangers and they found them. And so when they come to Hebron, they encounter these three descendants of Anak there. Now they should have thought, Hebron, let's see, that rings a bell. Because it was in Hebron, Abraham went to Hebron right after God said, I'm going to give you this land. And it was in Hebron that Abraham bought a cave, the cave of Machpelah, and he buried Sarah there. And later Abram, Abraham was buried there. And the spies should have thought of that and said, boy, we got a heritage here. God promised this place to Abraham. Abraham's buried right over there. Let's go take it. But they didn't. All they could think about are these descendants of Anak. Now, you, you keep going, and uh, pretty soon they say, all the land is filled with giants. You know, it goes from three to the whole land. And then by the time you get down to verse 33, they're not just the sons of Anak, they're the Nephilim. Ooh. The Nephilim, that, the only time in the Bible that word is used is in Genesis 6-4, and it was some sort of a super race of giants or somebody. And their scholars debate that. But, you know, the idea is these guys are formidable. And at the end of chapter, uh, verse 33, they say, we became grasshoppers in our own sight. And, and so were we in their sight. So these guys have magnified from three giants. Now to the whole land is filled with giants. And they're not just giants. They're Nephilim. Whoa. You know? Again, I had to chuckle. Alexander McLaren observes, fear performed the miracle of adding a cubit to their stature. <laughs> so their fear made these guys grow by a whole 18 inches, you know. Now they're really big. And the point is this. Problems have a way of growing when you're not trusting in God. And in verse 27, the spies, they agree. The land is flowing with milk and honey. They even show the cluster of grapes. The time they get to verse 32, it's a land that devours its inhabitants. And scholars debate what that mean by that. I kind of have a hunch they're talking about the warlike people that inhabited the land. But whatever they meant, the point is this. The spies are exaggerating to make their point. They're taking away God's promise. And they're magnifying the problems. And discouraging all the people and their view that prevailed was, hey guys, let's just play it safe and go back to Egypt. It'll all be okay there. And so the last thing to note is that to persevere in faith, yes, look at the facts, but then put them in the perspective of God's promises and God's power. And Joshua and Caleb saw exactly the same giants the ten spies saw. And they saw the giants from the perspective of God's promise and his power to keep his promise, as they just saw in the Exodus. God brought us out of there. He can take us in there. Good good point. And the ten spies say, these guys are going to devour us. We're like grasshoppers. And the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, and I love verse 9. The New American Standard says, they'll be our prey, but there's a marginal note. They'll be our food. And you put it in modern English, we're going to eat these guys for lunch. You know, we're going to take care of them because God is with us and God promised. <clears throat> McLaren points out how the ten spies presented their findings as objective facts. He says they sounded like an unbiased appeal to common sense as if the reporter had said, these are the facts we leave you to draw the conclusion. And then he adds this. To begin a perilous enterprise without fairly facing its risks and difficulties is folly. To look at them only is no less folly and is the sure precursor to defeat. But when on the one side is God's command and on the other such doleful discouragements, they are more than folly, they are sin. And so the point is, the ten spies and the two spies had exactly the same experience. They saw exactly the same giants, the same fortified cities, all of that. The ten interpret it through unbelief. The two interpret it through faith in God and his promises and his power to keep those promises. And here's the application. Some of you right now are facing giants. 
and they're pretty scary, and they're pretty big. And the question is, did God promise to be with you? Did he promise to keep you? Did he promise to bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom? Will you trust God and view the problem through the power and the promises of God? Are you going to say, oh, they're giants, they're Nephilim? That's the choice, belief or unbelief. And so I want you to ask yourself this morning, am I a big godder or am I a little godder? There are giants out there in this land and God calls us to conquer them through persevering faith in his promises that his word is just packed with and in his power of which there are many examples in his word. And in that great faith chapter, Hebrews 11 verse 6 affirms, without faith it is impossible to please him For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Dear Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see how great and mighty you are, how you have sustained your people down through the ages, how you are faithful and true Your loving kindness is greater than the mountains. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. And Lord, that we, your people, would trust you when we face these overwhelming trials, that we would not consider going back to this evil world that you've delivered us out of, but that we would move forward and claim your promises by faith. If there's anyone here, Lord, who has never opened their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and they're still in their sins, I pray that your spirit would open their eyes to see their desperate condition, that they would not even walk out of this door without bowing their heart before Jesus and crying out, Oh God, save me from my sins. Be merciful to me, the sinner. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.